Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. That was a recording of the hymn Savior of the Nations Come. It's from the the CD Martin Luther Hymns and Ballads or whatever um, by Concordia Publishing House. Uh, I began that pod this today because we have a theme. Today is March 25th. And I should note that this is a recording of the 101 series. As I mentioned a few weeks ago when I did my first couple podcasts of this, because I am now in a situation where I have two pat we have two pastors. We have an- I'm the associate, and then Pastor Salcedo is the senior pastor. That does have that means I have weeks where I don't preach, which is, you know, that's great. And but the thing is, because I don't, I won't be posting sermons that week. I thought it would be good to post these 101 series where we study the scriptures, talk about elements of the faith. And so today, is I, as I record it, is March 25th, a significant date in the church of the calendar, and for many, many reasons. Now to begin... For those of you who are more of the nerdy variety, such as I am, today is Tolkien Day, Tolkien Reading Day. So you should be at some point today reading, um, if you aren't really celebrated, you're going to be reading of Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, whatever it may be. You'll be reading one of his works. And the reason today is Tolkien Day is because March 25th, In the book, Lord of the Rings, is the date that the ring is destroyed. Now, why does Tolkien pick that date? Why March 25th? Well, first it begins with the understanding that you got to know that Tolkien is a devout Roman Catholic. He has a very strong faith in the one true God. And so, and it definitely comes through in Lord of the Rings, even in the films. And I will come to the, we'll do a podcast about the films somewhere down the line. But Tolkien being the Christian that he is, he chose March 25th because it is a theologically significant day. It begins with first the belief that March 25th was day one of creation. For much of history, March 25th, as we have come to know it, was um, New Year's. And so, this has actually affected the way our calendar is written. Um, There's a couple theories as to why our calendar is the way it is. Um, So, if you go to September, think of the month of September. The first part of the word is sept, seven, oct. Or sorry, um, yeah, seven, oct, eight, nove, nine, dec, ten, okay? So with that, September should be the seventh month, October should be the eighth, November should be the ninth, and December should be the tenth, but they're not. There's two theories as to why that is. The first theory is, is it has to do with the fact that um, Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus had to have their months. 
July and August. And so that pushed the months forward. Possibly. Another theory is, the reason is, is because March used to be the first month of the year. So it would be March, March 1, April 2, May 3, um, June 4, July 5, August 6, and then September would be 7, then 8, 9, 10. That's the way it used to be that it was at one time. But somewhere in the course of history, that changed. And which theory is true, I don't know. But it does count, come down to the theory, the belief, that March 25th, as we know it, is the first day of creation. And therefore, it became New Year's. And then the significance even increases. Because it was believed in the early church that March 25th, was the date in which Jesus was crucified. And so they picked that as the date, which becomes very significant for Tolkien. Um, especially, he's drawing on this, because March 25th, the, cru uh, the crucifixion, is the date that sin was defeated. Sin, death, and the devil. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. To Telestai, as it is in the Greek. And so, <clears throat> but there's, a, and then it goes, even, there's even a little bit more to this. In ancient cultures, Jewish culture specifically, there was the belief that a great prophet died on the same date in which they were conceived. And so because it was believed that Jesus died on March 25th, it was also believed that that was the date of his conception, which is the reason that to this very day, on March 25th, we celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation. It is one of the principal feasts of the church here. So if you were to open up Lutheran's service book, if you are a Lutheran, Missouri City Lutheran, if you're to open up Lutheran Service Book Hymnal, and if you're not Missouri City Lutheran, go get one anyways. There's some great hymns, there's good stuff in there. But at the very beginning of it, you'll find a selection, a listing of the feast days. And there's there's rankings of the days of the church year. There's the there's like the, the cream of the crop. There's they're, they're the days that no matter what, they're celebrated. In fact, no matter what day of the week. They land. They're celebrated. You're going to go to church on that day no matter what day it is, okay? And so, and only one of those such feasts has can move around as far as what day of the week it lands on. The other two are kind of static. But the first of that is Christmas, December 25th. So that's the first one. That one, if it lands on a Tuesday or a... Monday or Thursday, Friday, whatever, it's always celebrated. Christmas Eve and day. Um, that is always celebrated on March, December 25th. So that is a big, that's one of the days. The next one is actually an entire week. It's from Palm Sunday all the way to Easter, Holy Week. Those, those are, that's also 
a principal feast. No matter what, that's celebrated. It does not matter what other feast day or celebration lands on that week. If it lands in that week, it gets moved. So, for example, last Sunday um, was Saint, the Feast of St. Joseph. In our church, we celebrated that. But if the Feast of St. Joseph lands in Holy Week, we don't celebrate it. fast, Feast of St. Joseph probably would get moved to probably the Friday before Holy Week or something like that. Holy Week trumps anything that might land in that week. And that's going to come back to us in a little bit. Then the other one is Pentecost, which is 50 days after Easter. And these are, and those three feast days are um, the feasts of the Trinity, of the three persons of the Triune God. Christmas is the Feast of the Father. Easter, Holy Week is the Feast of the Son. Pentecost is the Feast of the Holy Spirit. And it's not of coincidence that the church, immediately after Pentecost, one week later, celebrates Holy Trinity. So those are the those are the tip top. Then you have the principal feasts of Christ, and there's a number of these. Um, so here is where your hymnal can come in handy, because the hymnal in Lutheran service book actually will bolden these principal feasts. And so the ones that are on this list would be the circum the circumcision and name of Jesus, uh, which would be um, January first. Uh, the second one would be on February 2nd, the purification of Mary and the presentation of our Lord, February 2nd. Then there is March 25th, today, the Annunciation of our Lord, which is called the Annunciation, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit. <clears throat> then there is the Visitation. The Visitation, it depends upon whether you're in the three-year lectionary or the one-year lectionary. If you're in the three-year lectionary, as our church is in, that's on May 31st. If you're in the one-year, it lands on July 2nd. Then there is the Nativity of St. John the Baptist. And then you have, uh, which is June 24th. And then you have um, St. Michael and all angels, which is September 29th. And then All Saints Day, which is November 1st. These, those days that I just listed, those are the days if they land on a Sunday, they are always celebrated. Always, always, always. So, for example, this year, November 1st landed on, on Sunday. And so we celebrate the circumcision and the naming of Jesus. Which is actually kind of nice for you, because if you had a really long New Year's Eve and you were up late, kudos to you coming on that day, because on January 1st, because you had the shortest gospel lesson of the entire year. It's just one short little verse, and that's it. It's like, um, and they had his, he was circumcised on the eighth day, and his name was Jesus. You may be seen it. Done. So... Um, especially if you have uh, the creed after the sermon, it's like, it's, you know, Lutheran calisthenics at its best. You know, sit up, sit down. So, that was, um, so that's what those feasts are today. And so today, March 25th, going back to that, the early church believed that Jesus was crucified on March 25th. Now, I say, as I say that, it's more, there's, I would say it's more likely that he was crucified 
on April 3rd, 33 AD. But tradition had it that Jesus was crucified on March 25th. And therefore, tradition also had it that Jesus was conceived on March 25th. Hence, that today is the Annunciation of the Lord. And so in the church, they would read from Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel came to visit Mary, and to tell Mary that she was pregnant with Jesus. So, add nine months to March 25th, and you get December 25th, Christmas. Now, if you're in the Julian, now there is some discrepancy between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And in the Eastern Church, they celebrate the Annunciation on April 6th, or April 7th, sorry. And then they celebrate Christmas on January 7th, or 6th. There's slight variations. Some are on the 6th, some are on the 7th. And... And so the reason for that is, is because the Julian versus the Gregorian calendar, I, I don't totally understand the calendar things. If you want to ask how those two work, go ask someone. I know there's some people that are experts in it. Go talk to them. I'm not that guy. But either way, however, the nuances between our two calendars, this is also the reason why sometimes they celebrate Easter on a different date than us. Uh, this year is not one of those years. This year we do celebrate Easter at the same time. And I would actually encourage you, if you have an Eastern Orthodox Church in your area, um, I would encourage you to add, note I said add, don't make it your exclusive, but add in a Midnight Pascha for, to your, worship, your Holy Week uh, worship experience, or whatever you want to call it. Um, celebrations, uh, because the Midnight Pascha is one of the most beautiful liturgies in the entire church. It is incredible. Um, for us, if you live at where I'm at, we're in Ida Grove, Iowa, uh, you'd have to go up to Sioux City to find one of these churches. Um, but, you know, wherever you have to go, there are, uh, I encourage you to go f check it out, and then make sure you go to a good Lutheran Church Sunday morning or whatever, or if you have to go to an Easter vigil. And I say that because Eastern Orthodox theologically has some issues and they don't have great preaching, but their liturgy is powerful. It's incredible. It makes it worth it. So, with all of that in mind, um, so like I said, December 25th, we celebrate on Christmas because of that nine months later. So you have that there's this claim that we picked December 25th to compete with, you know, Saturnalia or um, the birth of Mithras and all these things. And that's not factual. It's not accurate. It is because of this. Um, and there is sources that could corroborate that we were we were the belief that Jesus was crucified on March 25th, conceived on March 25th, and born on December 25th that predate the Feast of Saturnalia. And so, and they came out in times when the church was doing anything and everything it could to be different and to not be celebrating feasts in association with the pagan holidays. So, um, it's the idea that it was created, was picked December 25th to compete with other holidays 
is a cooperation of um, 20, 20th and 21st century um, myths and legends. Um, and I'm going to let you know, most of these claims of Christianity stealing from other religions usually turn out to be false. And it should be noted, it's probably not likely that Jesus was conceived on the same date that he was crucified. Uh, it was much more likely that Jesus was uh, born in uh, September or, uh, you know, somewhere in the fall, early fall, uh, especially given what we know in the text that there were sheep, the shepherds were outside tending to their sheep. So, so anyways, with all that in mind, we are going to, um, I'm going to read the Annunciation Gospel, but before that, I'm going to play a recording of uh, the King's Choir College in Cambridge, which, by the way, is an amazing choir, um, as they sing the hymn, Angel Gabriel from Heaven Came. A reading from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph 
of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of the Father, his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the gospel of our Lord. I'm going to give just a slight, simple meditation on this. As, you know, I dug through the history of the Annunciation, why it is today. Why March 25th is such a significant day. Why Tolkien chose this as the date that the rig was destroyed in his famous book. The reason why March 25th is so big is because in the history of the world, the date that it has been celebrated as, it tells us that the one who spoke the world into creation, the one who is the word, was the word, who was the word is, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Nothing that exists Everything that exists was made through him, John says. And that word became flesh. That's what the Annunciation is about. The Annunciation is about the fulfillment of the promise that was made in the garden. What hope and Eden prophesied, as you're going to hear in the hymn in a little bit, is prophesied in the garden of Eden to Eve and Adam. That the offspring of Eve would crush the serpent's head. That child in the womb of that teenage girl Mary, who's maybe 15 years old, is the hope. He is the promise long foretold. And it's March 25th was chosen because of the belief that Jesus was crucified on March 25th. Because on March 25th, because, it, because it's on the cross that the serpent's head was crushed. That sin, death, and the devil was crushed.
last year was kind of cool. We actually had the rare occurrence where the Annunciation landed on Good Friday. Now, many churches did the liturgical tradition and moved the Annunciation to the first, I think, the second Monday after Easter. And we're going to have to actually do that next year because the Annunciation lands on Palm Sunday. The Annunciation trumps literally every other day of the church year except Holy Week. And so next year we have a situation where it does have to be moved. But last year I did what I did is we didn't fully celebrate the Annunciation. We still had I still wore a black stole for Good Friday. But we started with that hymn, What Hope and Eden Prophesied. It's an Advent hymn. But it's one that communicates that the Annunciation was the beginning of the fulfillment of the hope that was given to Adam and Eve. That though they had fallen into sin, that death became a reality. And that child in her womb is the one who would conquer sin, death, and the devil. He is the creator of the world. He, he is the one that spoke the world into existence. And he saved the world. He, forgi- he brought salvation by his death on the cross. The word made flesh, crucified. In that, it is finished, he said. So, with that in mind, here is the hymn, What Hope and Eden Prophesied. And this is a recording by Concordia Publishing House Music.
So today we are going to continue in the practice of the 101 series is to read through scripture. And so um, last time I recorded, we went, th- we had gotten up to Matthew chapter 4. And so today we're going to get into Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'm going to give one little thing, talk about the church here before I do that. Uh, tomorrow is the fourth Sunday in Lent, which means if you are in a ch- some churches, if you gather, you will see the pastor wearing a different color vestment. And the color he will be wearing is rose. It looks like pink, and but it's technically rose. And the reason is, is tomorrow is Latere Sunday. The Sunday of Rejoicing. And the reason is, it's because the traditional color for Lent is violet. And the traditional color for Easter is white. When you mix white and violet together, you get rose. And so therefore, tomorrow, Latere Sunday, is the halfway point. It's to let you know that Lent is half over. And we are halfway to Easter. It's a moment to take a breather, a moment to rejoice, to celebrate a little bit. Um, In some churches, they make the practice that there are no flowers on the altar throughout the season of Lent. There's no flowers anywhere in the chancel, but they will bring them out in Latere Sunday. Um, Another practice that you will see is that there are some churches that forbid weddings. Uh, during the season of Lent, but they will allow them on Latere Sunday. Uh, there's certain things that ha- come out of it to let you know it is a it's a slight reprieve from the the drain that Lent is. And then next week, which is Judica Sunday, uh, Lent five, which is also used to be traditionally called Passion Sunday. That is when Holy Lent really intensifies. And so, uh, Latere is kind of a quick breather before you hit the marathon to to Easter. So, anyways, with all of that being said, we are going to see how far we get until we hit the one hour mark. As we begin in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of false all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Alright, so we're going to start going into some discussions here. So, the very beginning, he starts out with these things that are known as the Beatitudes. These series of blessings. And he is telling his disciples. And I want you to understand something. There's a large number of crowd. There's a large crowd following Jesus. But I want you to understand that when Jesus, when he is being followed, he is not, in this case, he's not preaching to the crowd. He is preaching to the, the twelve, all right? So, however, the crowd is there listening to it. And so, it is for the crowd, but it's primarily for the disciples, just to give you a little context here. And so... He's speaking to them, and he's telling them they are going to be persecuted. And so here's this thing about salt. In the ancient world, I mean, salt can be used for flavoring. Sometimes it's used for the preservation of food. Or it is used... To defend against an enemy. And so if you were to... It's used in combat. So in battle... Um, when, you know, when there would be a war... A common tactic in ancient warfare... Was to put to salt the crops of your enemy. Um, in order to kind of starve them out. And so... There's some debate as to how Jesus is using this. He could be using it for any of these types. Either it's telling us that we are to be the salt where we choke out the fruits of the enemy. It could be talking about how um, we are here to preserve things. So there's some different theories on how that's to be read. Uh, Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, I'd argue that this is influencing the salt part is that salt and light are both telling you salt stands out. Salt, you know, gives flavoring to food. It stands out in the food. And a light on a hill, as I said, it stands out. You know, we, here in Ida County, uh, where I live, 
Um, we have a lot of these windmills, and I'm not going to get into the debate about the windmills, but one thing that's notable is at the top of these windmills, they all have these red lights, and it almost looks like um, there's, you know, an impending alien attack or something. But, um, the reason I bring that up is because you can see those everywhere, in the pitch black of night, and that's the way light works. Light shines. Or on the water tower here in town. Um, you know, you could see a light for miles and miles in darkness. And so he's telling you that you are to stand out like salt in food. You're supposed to stand out like light on a hill. And this is after he said, Bless are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my... Account. So he's telling you as a Christian that you he's telling you the he's telling the disciples that you are to be standing tall. And Peter would do this when we get to the day of Pentecost. He does this. He stands almost on a hill and proclaims that he is a bright shining light in that crowd proclaiming the gospel. And you are to be the same. With the gospel, preaching it. And you will be persecuted on account of it. Now, it does not mean you're going to be put to death, especially if you're in the United States. Not likely. But people might not like you. They might tell you, hey, 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 keep your, keep your Jesus mumbo-jumbo at home. Or at church, you can talk about it in your house, whatever. But don't you tell me about your religion stuff. There's going to be all these things that people are going to say, but Jesus commands you not to be to hide your light under a basket and keep it in your house or keep it just inside of the walls of your church, but to be carrying it out in the world. You are to be a moving light, and the light that is in you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, and there's actually some. There's actually something that goes with this liturgically. I've explained this to my members. Is that okay? So in the early church, there was what is known as the service of light, and we had this preserved in evening prayer and Lutheran service book and in the Easter vigils. What would happen was the church would gather in the late hours of the night. Or the early hours of the morning when it was still dark out. And so they'd gather. And the pastor would come in with a single candle. And he'd process into the church with that single candle. And he and they would say these exchanges. And so they'd be like, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The light no darkness shall overcome. Stay with us, Lord, for it is evening, and the day is almost over. Let your light scatter the darkness, and illumine your church. So those are the responses in evening prayer, and I might have had them out of order. But they would so you'd say the first response at the back, 
the second response in the middle, and the third response in the begin and the front, and then the pastor would go to the front and he'd elevate his candle high and he'd set elevate that single candle in the modern church we call it we call this the pastel candle, and he'll say Joyous light of glory of the immortal Father, heavenly blessed Jesus Christ. You have come to the setting of the sun. So this is what is known as the full Hillerun. It's an ancient hymn dating back to the first century of the church. And the reason they went through this whole liturgy in the midst of darkness was a reminder that in the midst of darkness, the light of Christ shines. And then from that single candle, and we do this on Easter vigils, we would light our own candle, symbolizing that the light of Christ is in you. All right? And then in modern in churches, we have the candles lit on the altar. But as the service comes to an end, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, what they do, they do this in the Midnight Pascal, I think it's cool. They actually light a really large candle. And the reason they do this, each of them have a longer candle. And the reason is so that you don't extinguish the candle any time during the service. You're not supposed to extinguish it until you go home. And the reason, it's, it symbolizes that the light of Christ, you don't leave it in the church. You carry out, carry it forth in the world, proclaiming to people. <coughs> that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior who conquered sin, death, and the devil. That You are to be a salt that stands out. You are to be the light in the world. And yes, that means you will be persecuted. You will be hated. But it also means that people will hear. And people will believe. And by believing, they will have eternal life. And that makes it all the worth it. Alright. Continuing on to verse 17. Do you not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to come back to that, all right? Right there. But I'm going to straight up say, right there, Jesus has set the standard of the law extremely high. Because... The scribes and the Pharisees in the time of Jesus were the models of righteousness. And to hear that your, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees is terrifying. And Jesus says right there, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he tells people, do not relax his law. And he's going to get here. We're going to start going into this in the Sermon on the Mount that the law that Jesus provides is 
difficult and exceedingly difficult to keep. So it says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Oh, that's easy. I've never murdered anyone. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, not biological brother, anybody, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you put you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Here it's getting hard. If you've ever insulted someone, and it's interesting, it says, if you come to the altar with your gift, what Jesus is actually telling you is that you don't get that your gift is not your money, your possessions. Your gift is your brother or sister in Christ. They're the treasure. They're the gift. And you didn't get it because you came to the altar with a gift and yet you were turned against your brother. And here he's telling you, if you do not make up with your brother, if you don't reconcile, if you call him a fool, if you insult him, you hate him, you're angry with him, you are liable to the fire of hell. And, if you, and you will not get out of the prison of hell until you have paid for every last one of your sins. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. There's a lot of beautiful ladies out there or beautiful handsome men. You turn on TV, there's beautiful ladies and gals on there. That lust is not easy to break. But we fall into it over and over and over. And here Jesus tells you, if your eye or hand or whatever causes you to sin to cut it out, is Jesus being telling the truth? Yeah. But the problem is your hand doesn't cause you to sin. Your eye doesn't cause you to sin. Your ear, your nose, whatever, it doesn't cause you to sin. It's your heart that causes you to sin. It's your heart that needs to be destroyed. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
how much divorce is there in this country? And how many divorces are over frivolous reasons? Again, you've heard that it was as was said to those of old, you should not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, keep your word. But how many of us break our promises to our children? How many parents tell their kids, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and they don't? How many, how many children to their, say to their parents, I'm going to clean my room, I promise. I will do this, I will do that, and they don't. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Wow! Don't take revenge. Don't retaliate. I understand this is not a statement about death penalty, ladies and gentlemen. He's not talking to how a court is to operate. He's talking to people, individuals. Don't take revenge. Don't retaliate. But we always seek revenge. We're always trying to figure out how to even up. Jesus is actually telling you pretty much to take it. When people victimize you, take it. And by the way, Jesus would embody this. When we get to Matthew, he's going to get, at the end of the gospel, he's going to get slapped. In a few weeks, you're going to see, read about Good Friday. He's the one that's going to get slapped. He is the one that's going to give up all of his garments. He's going to be bare naked. He is the one that's going to have to go the distance. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? We'll talk about tax collectors later. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's, I'm gonna, we're not going to go into chapter 6 because that was a long chapter and we're almost at the hour mark. And I would probably go a little bit over the hour mark. But this whole series is such excruciatingly hard law. 
We don't stand out. We hide our light under a basket. We become angry. We insult others over and over. We embrace the gift of our possessions, but we don't embrace the gift of our fellow human. We look lustfully over and over. There is divorce all over and we justify it. We do let an iota of the law pass for divorce for reasons other than um, infidelity. We do not keep our word. We break promises over and over. We don't let our yes be yes and our no be no. We, we seek vengeance. We seek ways to pay people back for what they've done to us. And we most certainly don't love our enemy. We don't pray for those who persecute us. I mean, when was the last time you prayed for ISIS? Listen to me. You didn't pray. I'm not saying that you prayed that ISIS would be defeated. I'm saying, when's the last time you prayed that their hearts would be turned to Christ? When is the last time you prayed for the well-being of that person that wronged you when you were young or in high school or at work, your boss that you don't like? We don't. And he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is how far your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. This is hard law. Very hard law that we don't keep. As we are in the season of Lent, it's a season of repentance. We focus upon the fact that we break God's law over and over and over again. We deserve hell. And we can't pay off every last sin because we do it over and over. So we need, but the, if we go back to that thing where Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The need of a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. To pluck out the very thing that causes us to sin. To be perfect as your heavenly father is imperfect. It all begins with what I talked about a little bit ago. To tell us die. It is finished. Jesus kept the law. He did not relax one Iota, and every last penny that is necessary to pay for our prison sentence was paid not with silver and gold, but with his innocent suffering and death, with his blood on the cross. See, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. That's right. By the cross. A righteousness that exceeded that of the scribes 
and the Pharisees was guaranteed to sinful human beings like you and I. And it is given to us in the waters of baptism where we put on Christ, as it says in Galatians. When we are baptized, we are crucified with Christ and we are raised to a new life with Christ. And we are made to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We are given the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. In our baptism, our sinful heart that causes us to sin is put to death. See, we can't keep this law. And that's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, is he is showing us how we are completely and utterly incapable of keeping up with his demand. But, but, we are made Heirs, righteous, perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. The blood of the Lamb and the waters of baptism. It is finished, he said. So with that in mind, next couple weeks from now, we will go into uh, Matthew chapter 6. More into the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe we'll get into chapter 7, finish up the Sermon on the Mount. Um, until then, I'm probably going to record a, an episode of the Key Row Film Society in the next day or two. Uh, you are welcome to listen to that. Um, it's, I'm going to go probably with a bit of a French theme. And I'll probably also be posting some sermon, a couple sermons in the next week. So... Until then, um, I am Pastor Neil Wemus. I am Associate Pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ida Grove, Iowa. Uh, if you happen to be in the area, you are welcome to attend our services. We have services at 6 o'clock Saturday evenings, uh, 8, 8 o'clock and 10.30 Sunday morning. Uh, if you do not live in the area, you are welcome to attend. I encourage you to go to www.issuesetc.org or www.lutheranliturgy.org or uh, www.lcms.org on any of those sites you should find a good Bible believing doctrinally faithful church in your area uh, and I encourage you to attend it uh, until then the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. God bless.